Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Bob Michael, Chief Investment Officer at JP Morgan Asset Management. Bob, fantastic to have you with us. Just walk us through your reaction, your thoughts in response to what's happened in the last hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, I, I think it, it's been quite stunning, but I feel it was the fair and appropriate move by the Fed to step in here. You cannot stand back and watch what's going on and say, we're going to wait for the data. The markets were telling us that this is an anticipatory event. We know that the, the virus will spread and the Fed should be doing something. I thought it was a very good press conference. I thought the 50 basis point cut was the right amount to do. And I think he positioned it correctly, where he said it cannot slow the rate of infection. It cannot fix the broken supply chain, but it will boost household and business confidence. And it can avoid a tightening in financial conditions. Um, So I'm happy and relieved that the Fed stepped in here um, and did something. But has it changed your strategy? You and I were kicking around some ideas over email about an hour or so ago on the Bloomberg. And just one line from you, Bob, just jumped out to me. This is a good bounce to sell high yield. Bob, why? Because we know that that the supply chain is broken. We know that there are some industries, travel and leisure in particular, that are going to be impacted. But what about all the suppliers to those industries? Do we understand that? What about the insurance entities? Do we know how long economies will be closed? All of those things draw a put a question mark around what corporate profitability will look like for the next several quarters. And I'd rather Uh, cash in the chips now and wait it out. Bob, I think this is so important, folks. I can't convey enough the polarity across the research screens that we have. We are hugely advantaged by the smartest people on Wall Street, including Mr. Michael, and they are split over this emergency rate cut. Bob Michael, to me, it devolves down to real GDP or maybe some other metric you may like, and that the Fed has a look, a guess, a forecast of a really grim and sustained couple quarter GDP. Have you people modeled that out yet? Can you say it's a negative GDP or flat, 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 flat for X number of quarters? You can't because right now the data in the U.S. looks okay. But the news as it comes out progressively is more school closings, the infection rate continues to accelerate in the U.S. These are problems. We know it leads to quarantining. We know it leads to a shutdown of the economy. That's the only thing you can do now. What the Fed has done is it's paved the way for lower-cost funding across the system. That takes some of the pressure off. I want to see what happens at the SBA next. That's the entity that's going to make loans to small businesses. Is 20 to $25 billion the right number? I don't think so. Do they have a war chest of $100 billion they could draw on? We need to see how these things play out. There are an awful lot of question marks that, that lay ahead for us. The Fed cannot be one of these question marks. 
and it stepped in and did exactly what they needed to do. I mean, John, I was framing this earlier with Vonnie Quinn. I mean, you get to nominal GDP, which is, say, a 1% run rate on GDP plus 2% inflation. That does not get it done for this American economy and the responsibilities that Bob Michael has at his bank. Well, Bob, I think you've touched on something massively important. It's how we help short to medium-sized, small to medium-sized enterprises through a massive one-off temporary, potentially temporary shock. And I say temporary with a big asterisk on top of it because it might not be. Because if we don't deploy the right tools, all of a sudden you end up with a economic shock that would otherwise be temporary becoming something a lot darker because people need to lay off staff because they can't get a bridge through to the middle of the year. For me, it's just about how do we get that bridge to the middle of the year when the health crisis passes and we have a clearer path towards recovery. We've had the rate cut, Bob. What do you want to see more of? Well, I think we've seen the roadmap, unfortunately, from China, which is a month and a half ahead of us. And it is small businesses, the small and mid-sized enterprises that run out of cash in one month or two months. It's something like a third to two-thirds of SMEs run out of cash in a couple of months. So we know when economic activity shuts down, they don't have operating cash to keep going. How we get money to them is important. Is it the SBA or are banks incented to lend? And and how do you backstop the banks to be able to do that? That's what we need to see. That's what makes this temporal if we can extend credit into the system and wade through the slowdown that's coming over the next couple quarters. But you absolutely do not sit there as the Fed and do nothing and keep yeah. your powder dry. That's some of the silliest commentary I've heard. Lisa Bauer, it's a tape giving away. It's a correlated giveaway, negative 300 down, negative 453. The yen is trying to find new weakness and look at the 10-year yield. Yeah, that's where exactly where I wanted to go right now. We're looking at a 10-year yield, 1.03%, uh, just plummeting. And really look at the equities right now. Uh, absolutely, uh, really red across the screen. Dow now down 1.7%, S&P down 1.5%. Bob, you thought that this was an appropriate policy reaction based on the market reaction right now if it holds through the end of close which is a big if given how whippy things have been how can you say that this isn't the market saying it's a policy misstep using up ammunition now at a time when it's not the correct response to the issue i don't see what harm this has done you've just lowered the cost of funding across the system Consumers, we've seen this last year with a 75 basis point cut in the Fed funds rate. It led to an acceleration in mortgage refis. 50 basis points will have a similar effect. It validates the current rate environment. I think it's all positive. I think one of the things it may have done is validated there are legitimate concerns out there. This, The Fed and policymakers do not at all view this as any kind of v-shaped event it's a u with the bottom of the u lengthening out a bit so i don't think it's a policy mistake at all i think the markets are waking up to the reality uh, that there is a significant problem that lies ahead for the U.S. economy that's going to last more than a month or so tom just had a record low print on the u.s. 10-year yield your all-time low now 102 
1.83. We're just off it at the moment, but all-time lows on 10-year yields. The bid coming into the bond market, quite phenomenal. Again, we're down 13 basis points. I mean, and Bob, you know, Bob Michael has answers that go on forever. We went down 120, ba- 120 Dow points just on Mr. Michael's last answer. I know how much That's John likes to just quote things moving. in points. Well, I hate Dow points, but I've got to tell you, because everyone uses it, it kind of matters. That's what the public matters. I mean, what do you see, Bob Michael, at your bank? For psychology. You've got a pulse on this. And when we talked to Lizanne Saunders at uh, Charles Schwab, you've got a different institutional view. What are institutions doing, Bob Michael, now down 600 points? What have you observed in the last week? Well, I think one of the things this 50 basis point cut has done is it re-steepened the yield curve from three months to 10 year. Now that's evaporating very quickly, but we had been inverted. Re-steepening it is going to bring in money from overseas. The negative yielding markets are going to find it to their advantage to come in and buy intermediate bonds in the US, high quality investment grade, and be able to hedge it back to their base currency with very little cost associated with that. So I would expect overnight money to come pouring in from overseas into the U.S. market. John and Lisa, I'll let you do the 10-year yield. John Herman just publishes with his great acuity and granularity at F-U-M-J, F-U-F-U-F-G, M-U-F-G. I've been up since 1 a.m. Cut cut me some slack. M-U-F-G, Securities Americas, and he really emphasizes another two rate cuts, uh, uh, highlight the risk of another two rate cuts in the second quarter of this year. So he's on the beep watch as well. I want to look also, though, at, uh, at just forward break-even rates and the idea of what this means for future inflation. They're not increasing materially. And to me, that speaks exactly to Bob's point, John, this idea that this isn't necessarily stimulus so much as an acknowledgement of a reality that perhaps was not being acknowledged by markets previously. Yeah, I've been saying this for a number of weeks now, in fact, a number of months. This market has just priced the Fed as follows. We believe you. You're going to give us lower rates. We'll price that, but we'll price it right the way through the curve because guess what? We don't believe it's going to work. We don't believe it's going to end up with higher inflation expectations, and we don't believe you're going to be in a position to hike at any time, anytime soon down the road. Intraday 10-year yield to record low moments ago, 1.0280. We'll watch how that gyrates around negative 500 on the Dow. John, across the pond, because we're going to be doing the cable, a special edition at 12 noon today. I'll pull on a British accent. The two-year yield, there's 0.23. 0.23. 0.23. 0.23. Yeah. Is Governor Carney on a negative rate watch to gum up Bob Michael's life? He's got a bit of space before he gets the negative rates, but certainly I think a lot of people are looking for a 25 basis point cut. For me, the other side of the Atlantic, I want to tell you a story. The 30-year yield, end of 2018, the 30-year yield, 343. 343. And right now, 164. And Bob Michael, a friend of ours, I remember it was Mike Collins over at PGM. A couple of years ago, I said to him, in 10 years, how will we view this bond market looking back 10 years? Will we think these low yields were ridiculous? And I remember him turning around to me and saying, you will wish you had bought a 30-year with a three-handle because you're never going to get it again. Bob Michael, these kind of yields, do we have to live with them now? Is this it? Yeah, I think we're stuck living with them for a while. Um, I I think all the things that have been disinflationary, uh, the demographics, the globalization of of manufacturing and and supply um, and and the impact of technology aren't going away anytime soon. I don't know what it's going to take. It may take some huge fiscal stimulus.
Bob Michael of JP Morgan Asset Management, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, Dan Skelly here. Uh, Dan, what do you think of this? Well, look, I think this is the first time that you're seeing a potential conflict or disruption that could affect the consumer, right? When you go back, you think about the last 10 years of this up move in the markets. We had the energy collapse in 15. We've been going through a U.S. profits recession for the last 18 months. Frankly, neither of them has really affected the consumer. And so I think the Fed is making this emergency move, as you mentioned, the first time really since 08 to have an intra-meeting move because they're concerned in terms of what this virus, what this trend, this uh, issue, this conflict could mean towards the used consumer. Dan, there are so many risks at play here, and I caught up with Wacken Fowles of PIMCO around about an hour ago, right before the 50 basis point cut from the Fed. And he said, we face the very real risk of a services-led recession. And that's not a risk we've had to face for much of the last 10 years, because a lot of it has come out of China, a lot of it has been driven by manufacturing. Exactly right, Jonathan. So if you look back at 15, 16, the, the positive externality of an energy recession is low gas prices, net positive for the consumer. Energy, uh, China and EM slowing down and the U.S. profits recession has not impacted the U.S. consumer. So it is a risk. It's not Morgan Stanley's base case right now. I think the Fed certainly is, is adding some support and some, uh, frankly, some hope that they can support markets and the economy from here. But frankly, rates were already low. Yep. Yeah, but this is exactly my question. I mean, what signal does it send to the world if the Fed has an emergency 50, rate ba- uh, 50 basis point rate cut and equities don't rally, which we're seeing them whip around and not maybe even doing so, given the fact that the Fed is doing so ahead of what could be exactly, as you say, a consumer-led recession. So that this was exactly my fear when we saw the, the emergency rate cut earlier today, was that the market would rally, and then you'd see a pullback. And frankly, you're seeing it right now. It also follows yesterday's 5% move. So what I would just say is, if you just zoom out for a second, you think about what's transpired over the last couple of weeks. Frankly, to have the market sell off 10% in seven trading sessions, fastest 10% correction in market history is unprecedented. And what we typically see, if you go back 30 or 40 years, Lisa, you have these events, these risk events, whether it's terrorism, whether it's disease, whatever it is, you typically get a first low made, you get a potential short-term snapback, and then within months, the history shows you typically get a retest of the lows. And so that's likely the case in this scenario as well. We're going to hear from U.S. companies in April and May what the earnings impact is. So that could potentially be the retest of the low we've seen the last couple of weeks. It's so interesting here. Dan Skelly with us with Morgan Stanley. Uh, this morning is the ambiguities that are out there. Dennis Gartman just sent me a love note, and he's been dead on on gold, and not only gold, but in yen. He makes clear that he tilts towards this is inflationary just as many people are saying it's disinflationary. What does Ellen Sentner say? So we're more in the camp that we're going to see modest inflation this year. We've actually uh, seen the potential for the coronavirus to impact global growth to the tune of 2.5% slowdown. And does inflation correlate with that? I don't personally think you're going to see a massive spike. of. I mean, look at what's happening with commodity prices as well. So it's hard to make the case that you're going to see a huge spike in inflation here in our in our view. There's a lot of moving parts here, Lisa. Yeah, and I'm, tr- I'm struggling to know, Dan, what do you tell clients when they call you right now? Sure. So two things. One is in the near term, expect higher volatility, right? Prior to the last couple of weeks, we saw the most placid, steady, straight up rally since September. And we all knew that wasn't likely to sustain given it was mostly boosted by liquidity from the Fed. And so what I would say is, in addition to the coronavirus fallout, you've got uh, geopolitical and U.S. domestic 
political cross currents ongoing today in focus, of course, as well. So the case for rising volatility near, near term is there. The second thing, however, we say is we are still amid a secular bull market. And I made this point the last time I was fortunate to be with you a couple of weeks ago. But the point is we think we're in a 20-year bull cycle. In that type of time frame, and the precedent shows from 82 to 99, you can have near-term pullbacks. Look at the last 10 years. We've had three 20% drawdowns in 10 years, each of which was a massive buying opportunity. So near-term, expect more vol. Longer term, we still think we're, we're halfway through a 20-year up move. Coming into 2020, the house view for you guys at Morgan Stanley, I remember, was to allocate a little bit more capital to the story abroad. Has that changed? Look, Jonathan, we've seen a, uh, international names and international equities perform better to the downside in the last couple of weeks, which I think illustrates how crowded the growth trade had gotten. Um, and so we still like advocating, frankly, to that space. We wouldn't make it a, an aggressive overweight today. We want to gradually get into it over time. It's going to take time, frankly, to play out. It's not like a light switch going off. you know. And, and frankly, that's the trend. If you look back this decade, it's been a US-led market. If I go back to the decade prior to that, that from 2000 and 2009, it was an international-led market. So typically, these transitions take time to play out. What are returns going to look like over the next decade or so, given the fact that we've got benchmark yields at record lows? How much do we have to lower our returns expectations even further? Yeah, so we've annualized 14% compounded returns in the S&P the last nine or 10 years, which, as you know, is twice the average. So it's unlikely that you're going to repeat that magnitude of U.S. performance. Uh, we've got over the next five or six years, we've got U.S. returns averaging around 4.5%, uh, and we've got international returns and EM returns doing slightly better than that because the value valuation starting points are so much lower. Where we could see a surprise to the upside, in brief, is if we see a bigger pickup in productivity and demographic-led growth in the U.S. This is the story that, frankly, not a lot of people are, are talking about. And Ellen Zentner from our economics team has actually led the way talking about how the demographic shift from the savers to the millennials in the next five to 10 years could lead a big pickup in growth. So maybe that adds some optionality. Lisa, let me paint a picture here over here on the wall of monitors that we have here at Bloomberg Radio Worldwide is an American flag and a Federal Reserve flag and the assembled. Michael McKee is not there. He didn't take the golf stream down, did he? Well, he didn't anticipate this happening today. Okay, he didn't, you know, <laughs> we'll have someone there. It's a, it's a very crowded room with huge anticipation. This goes way beyond, Lisa, way, way beyond what you'd see at a 2 p.m. Fed, uh, Fed well, Day meeting. My question is, how are they going to thread this needle and say they are trying to be proactive, but the U.S. economy is still strong? How are they going to send the signal that they needed to do a 50 basis point rate cut, which has, frankly, unclear direct consequences on the actual problem, but also say that we're not going to see a material slowdown? I mean, John, I mean, that's the action that we're seeing today in equities with people not clear on what the message is here, because if this is a consumer driven downturn, not a great time to buy stocks. I think he's just got a Stan Skelly has been sitting along here, uh, who is with Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. What was your impression of the press conference? I, I would say it's become apparent, to Jonathan's point, that the Fed doesn't want financial conditions to be the third risk that derails the cycle. So when you think about the scenario today, it's a consumer potential risk. It's a corporate risk, particularly as it pertains to travel, leisure, those sectors. And so I think they just bought time with trying to put a put under the, the financial conditions risk being the third risk. And frankly, I would just add to that, the Fed is not the only game in town. The G7 met today. So we talk about the Fed and what the initiatives they've taken. Keep in mind, this issue started in China. China has signaled that they're willing to step in with potential fiscal stimulus to support the, the global economy as well.
Jim Bianco joining us now, president and founder of Bianco Research in Chicago. And Jim, what was her reaction to this 50 basis point rate cut? Better late than never. I think that this was inevitable that they had to do it. I actually thought they were going to do it yesterday, and um, I think it was the right move. There's a question about, uh, as Damian Sasser of Bloomberg Intelligence points out, moral hazard, right? I mean, the idea that the Federal Reserve will come in and deliver an emergency rate cut if markets correct. What's your response to that? If the markets correct all the way back to new highs, I think they should take it back. I think what we have to recognize is, not only in our careers, but maybe in our lifetimes, what's happening now is unprecedented. What I mean is, None of the economic data matters right now. None of what we think matters right now. What we're betting on is what's going to happen in two or three weeks. Are we going to see the number of cases in the United States run the path that we've seen in South Korea, Italy, Iran, China, up into the thousands? Are we going to see widespread school closure? Are we going to see millions of two working families have to force to leave one parent home? Are we going to see massive disruption to the economy? And I think that the answer is that is a very real possibility. So the Fed getting ahead of that makes sense. Now, if fortunately it doesn't come to pass, or hopefully it doesn't come to pass, we could say, look, we dodged a bullet and we could take it back. But right now, if the answer is we're going to wait until we hit the brick wall, it's too late. We have well, to start breaking now or start ad- adapting now before we run into that wall. Right now, I'm looking at equities. They've been whipping around. Uh, now they're a little changed after being up more than 1% and down uh, almost as much as that. I'm trying to understand, though, what this does. I mean, what does a 50 basis point rate cut actually do, both from financial markets as well as from the underlying economy when money already is practically free? I think if, 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 if what I fear and what I think the market feared with the, one of the biggest down weeks ever last week is that we are coming into a period of huge disruption, then you have to adjust your standards. All the Fed is doing is managing the decline. They're trying to say, look, we know that maybe, and this is an unusual circumstance, that the recession starts in March. It starts in March with the huge disruption that spills into the second quarter. March is enough to throw the first quarter into negative GDP. We're just managing that decline. And in an era with hundreds of inverse ETFs, leverage ETFs, the ability of a market route is very high. So if you want to come in and, quote, keep the speculators honest by creating a short squeeze along the way, otherwise we're going to keep repeating what we saw last week is what is what the other thing is. So no, they're not in the business of trying to fix this. They're not in the business of trying to put the market at new highs. They're in the business of trying to manage the decline. So Jim, I think if you put it in that respect. Now, like I said, maybe it doesn't come to pass. Maybe the fears that we have about the disruption in the economy doesn't come to pass. They can reverse all this. And I don't think that would be a problem. There's a big question, though. What's the signal to markets of this 50 basis point rate cut if what you're saying is true, that the Fed is just pricing in a new reality today at a time when this has the potential to seriously throw the, 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 the market into uh, the economy into recession? I mean, does that mean that equities are a sell here? Uh, it, it can mean that. I think you got to back up and remember, as I said at the top, the the bond market priced in 
a rate cut literally for yesterday. In fact, I was out talking about that they're all set for a rate cut yesterday. It didn't happen yesterday. Then there was talk that it was going to happen before the open today, and then it came 30 minutes after the open. So what the Fed delivered is merely what the market wanted. Yeah. So they didn't surprise the market anyway, maybe only in the timing that it came after the close. I mean, after the open, once the open came, we thought they, the, we, they were done for the day, but apparently not. But I do think that what they gave the market is what it expected. The yeah. market is fearing this type of scenario. Yeah. And so they're not going to create any kind of backlash. They're just kind of going along with what we all fear might happen. We're speaking with Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. I'm so glad to say that walking by, we have uh, John Farrow and Tom Keene, Bloomberg Surveillance uh, hosts. And dragged also, off the streets. <laughs> dragged off the streets. It's lunchtime. Uh, it's lunchtime, and we're going to have lunch in the radio booth. And, you know, this has been something we were wondering when the G7 statement came out this morning. It did not preclude some sort of action, and certainly we did see this action come out. And I'm curious, from your initial reaction, uh, Tom, what was your sense when this came across? Oh, it was an easy decision. I mean, you go 25 or 50 basis points, and they certainly gave the market what they'd like. The ramifications of this into the future need to be thought out by everyone. Everybody will weigh in, and there'll be essays written and all that. I, as I just mentioned to John Writing of Breen Capital, what's so important to me here is the nominal take. Think Michael Darted and MCAM Partners, that it's not just the real economy and adding in a new low inflation but what's that animal spirit of the top-line GDP? There's a psychological response to all of this as well. I think we're in a really, really delicate moment. And Jim, I'd love to have you weigh in on this. If we get adverse price action in the face of actual cuts, there's a real risk that the narrative gets away from Chairman Powell here. The last thing the Fed needs to do today is reinforce the argument that's already out there, that they don't have a role to play here. Is that the risk at 11 o'clock, Jim? I think that is a risk that the Fed has, but it's a risk that they have to take. Uh, I think that the idea that the Fed is going to wait until they get data, we're going to wait till we see a bad payroll report or a bad retail sales report or dive in consumer confidence, this will be over at that point. You're talking about late April or May that they would probably get confirmation in the data if this virus spreads to the point that we think. So getting ahead of this, I think what Paul could say at the presser is, we know what we know what we're all fearing is going to come. We're acting, and if it doesn't come, we could do a 9 a.m. 50 basis point hike on the backside well, of this. Well, hold on a I'll second. It. That's what I wanted to bring up. Do you think the Fed could actually reverse this? What is the precedent for them being able to reverse this hike rates and not cause a disruption? Well, there's no precedent for this to happen in the first place. We are cutting rates in anticipation of something that we have absolutely no evidence that has happened. But we have a good feeling, based on what we've seen in other countries, with the amount of virus growth, will happen. So this is completely unprecedented territory. So it's an appropriate move in that regard. And yeah. if you point out that, yeah, and the backside of it is we could hike rates. We're just going to go right back to where we were at um, one hour ago. That's all you would be saying is when we hike rates, if this scenario 
of massive virus growth in the United States does not come to pass. Just to bring you some insight on some of the price action out there, of course, risk assets looking for a bid here off the back of a surprise rate cut, 50 basis points from the Federal Reserve. Just caught up with Bob Michael over at JP Morgan Asset Management, shot him a quick message, he fired back, he was looking for a 50 basis point cut. Here's the quote from Bob, head of fixed income at JP Morgan Asset Management, this is a good bounce to sell high yield. The knock-on effects of economies shutting down have yet to be fully understood. It's not just the services sector and travel, etc. It's all the suppliers to those industries. The data is going to be distorted for the next few quarters. That's the view off the back of a 50 basis point cut. And Jim, I just wonder how many other big players in this market will feel the same way. I think all of them should. I think if you look at what's happened in Japan, South Korea, Italy, Iran, China, as I said earlier, uh, it would almost be a baseline scenario to assume that when we get into late March, you've got thousands of cases in the U.S., all the schools in the New York City area are closed, and hundreds of thousands of two working family parents have to leave one home to take care of your kids. Can't send them to daycare. That's, again, a group of people again. So that is a massive disruption for an economy if we're going that route. And all we've got to say that we're not going to go that route at this point is wishful thinking. We can hope, and I certainly hope, if we don't go there. But that's what we're betting, or not betting on, but that's what we're fearing and reacting to that anticipation. Like I said, there's never been another scenario like this before. Lisa Bramowitz, Stephen Stanley publishes at Amherst Pierpont. His note is scathing. He calls the cut terribly uh, inconsiderate, uh, terribly ill-considered, excuse me, terribly ill-considered. He makes very clear they're playing the stock market. Uh, and that tones out there. John Riding and Breen Capital felt much the same as uh, Mr. Stanley. And, you know, this is the arch debate that's going on now between Bob Michael at J.P. Morgan and, and what we're hearing from from a select economist that say, just wait a minute, what, what's the effect here? Why are we doing this? I have to also wonder, again, this, this is not a financial market crisis akin to what we saw in 2008, where there is a banking issue. And typically, the Federal Reserve has the most direct contact with the banks. But I wonder, uh, you know, to what extent people will view this as a negative will actually uh, weaken the banking system by reducing net interest margins uh, at a time when they need to be increasing some of their lending. I do have to wonder about that. So Lisa, I'm not worried about the banks and I don't can think I, many can people are. But, but Jim, I, I want to jump in on the following and then you can breathe some life into the conversation too. My worry is that an economic shock becomes a financial one because they don't deploy the right tools to address all of this. That if you don't have small and medium-sized enterprises in this very moment off the back of a really big demand shock, then they're going to come out the other side of this in a couple of months in really bad shape. Yeah, I, I agree that that is the concern. But um, if I can go into the weeds real quick for you, remember the repo support that the Fed was doing that we used to make a lot of noise about? Well, today, the amount of repo support that the, that the dealers asked the Fed broke all the records today. They oversubscribed the overnight. They oversubscribed the term repo, and they asked for well over $100 billion of support. That's not happened, that we've oversubscribed both of them in the same day. All of a sudden... There's a tremendous need for liquidity from the banking system. Now, I'm not going to tell you I know why. But I didn't expect this to happen. But nevertheless, something else is going on here that all of a sudden the dealers are demanding huge amounts of liquidity in the market. That might have had some play in this. And maybe it's a question to ask Chairman Paul at the press conference. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.